Hello, Trash Crusaders. Welcome to episode 22 of Save Trash Cinema, the podcast where exploitation and exploration come together. It is I, your humble host, your guide through trash cinema, and your favorite dumpster boy, Cayman Darty. And on today's episode, we're delivering our own PSA that Australia is a terrifying country with terrifying creatures, and no one in their right mind should ever visit that hellscape when we cover the 1984 exploitation classic, Razorback. But before we get to that, let me introduce you to the man whose shrimp has never been close to a Barbie, my friend, Patrick Schweiger. Is that, uh, is that about my penis? I mean, you can infer what you want from that. What is my shrimp, Cayman? Uh, yeah, can I you spell you, it out for the folks at home? Never. You infer what you want. Same with the okay. audience. This is an All art right. house podcast, Patrick. Leave me alone. And All our right. special guest host on today's show is one half of Switchblade Cinema, the voice of reason, pushing to save the burning... And the director of the recently released and absolutely stellar horror short, Do Not Resuscitate, our friend Keir Seward. Keir, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. And uh, I'm excited to talk about how, uh, even though I've been to Australia twice, I have never seen as much smoke as is in this movie. <laughs> well, I think you're missing out on the saloons part of Australia because, god damn, that whole thing, either with, I don't know if it was cigarette smoke, cigar smoke. Or someone just added a fog machine to it. But boy, oh boy, it was insane. Smoky. But before we jump in, let's do a little quick housekeeping. We'd love it if you rate and review the podcast on your podcast app of choice. Don't forget you can be on the show by submitting movie recommendations or be being a guest host by emailing us at savetrashcinema gmail.com. Or you can DM us on Twitter or Instagram at savetrashcinema as well. Make sure to check out last week's episode when we answer the question of what is a foaming Chewbacca? When we cover the Jenna Jameson-led 2008 horror comedy, Zombie Strippers. We will be continuing to release mini-sodes, crossover episodes, interviews, and apparently game shows uh, periodically. So keep your eyes peeled for some exciting content coming down the pipeline. I got to start, Kevin, by saying I, I was disappointed that there were no foamy Chewbacca's in Razorback. That's all. I just want to start with that. I, you know, outside of... Um, the dark web. I'm not sure if you'll find foamy Chewbacca's anywhere, buddy. <laughs> I'm not. I I I have no context because I haven't listened to the episode yet, so I have no context for what a foamy Chewbacca I, is. I can't wait for you to get to it and learn what it is because I, it'll, I think it'll it'll be more fun for you to learn. My, that my brain is going with all sorts of potential ideas of what it could be. I mean, it's it worse. could be could be anything from a Halloween costume to a sex act. I I don't know what to expect. It's Just the worst imagine. thing you could imagine. Yes. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. But enough talk about foam and Chewbacca's. Let's do a quick overview of Razorback. How many Razorbacks would you kill in a season? There isn't a season for Razorbacks, girlie. Then why kill them? Something about blasting the shit out of a Razorback that brightens up my whole day. Razorback is a 1984 Australian when animals attack horror film directed by Russell Malaki and written by Everett DeRoche and based off the novel of the same name by Peter Brennan. Russell Malaki is best known for 164 films, including but not limited to The Scorpion King 2, Rise of a Warrior, Resident Evil Extinction, Highlander, and pretty much every Duran Duran music video to exist. What a resume to start us off here. 
some some trivia. Uh, apparently, during the audio commentary of the aforementioned Resident Evil Extinction, Russell, Mul- how do you say it? Mulcahy? Mo- it's Mulcahy. Okay. Oh, shit. Well, there you go. Uh, said that the producer. <laughs> so Mulcahy said that the producer of the film of this film, Razorback, offered him the chance to direct it after seeing the Duran Duran music video, Hungry Like the Wolf, which he also directed, which famously in the Schweigert household uh, gave my sister nightmares, that music video, Hungry Like the Wolf. So, I mean, I mean, the, the, the fact that I really like about him is that he uh, directed the music video for Video Killed the Radio Star. So literally was the first video ever shown on MTV. How Holy about shit. that? Completely missed that part. I mean, he's he's actually basically one of the most important music video directors in terms of like the art form and the advancement of the art form. So it's he's he's kind of a big deal um in in yeah no i mean it's just like ron burgundy he's kind of a big deal (laughs) (laughs) well going on to the writers everett deroche is best known for the ozploitation classics patrick and the long weekend whereas peter brennan outside of one singular novel is known for being the historic producer behind daytime classics judge joe brown and judge duty i i I will say everett deroche is actually also really fucking legit like he's um he like uh he made this movie that i really like too called snapshot which is also in america called uh, the day after halloween mm-hmm. uh, which involves uh, a serial killer slasher stalking this woman in an ice cream van um and just basically like has he has like a run in like the late 70s early 80s just during the key exploitation period where i mean he just like he, everything he was writing was pretty legit um, also road games with oh, yeah. um with with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and Stacy Keach uh directed by Richard Franklin that movie is fucking legit as well Honestly, so i mean yeah i'm i'm a patrick guy that's that was actually my, i think probably my first um exploitation film i watched it was kind of the one that was like when you searched at the time this was probably 15 years ago but when you searched exploitation it was one of the very first movies that pops up like on every list and so it was my first deep dive absolutely love that movie and its accompanying sequels are all well and and richard franklin who did that went on to direct uh psycho part two which is also uh, a really like legitimately good movie Mm. and it's like so it was he was kind of australia's answer to alfred hitchcock and yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't want to get off track, but again, it's so easy for me to just go down any kind of like exploitation uh, rabbit hole. No, I love well, it. We're speaking, among titans, apparently. With we the, are the the creative minds behind this movie. Speaking of exploitations, the story goes as such: a vicious wild boar terrorizes the Australian outback. The first victim is a small child who is killed. The child's granddad is brought to trial for killing the child, but is acquitted. The next victim is an American TV journalist. Her husband, Carl, gets there and starts to search for the truth. The local inhabitants won't really help him, but he's joined by a hunter and a female farmer to find the beast. The film stars Gregory Harrison from Trilogy of Terror, Body Chemistry 2, Voice of a Stranger, and Air Bud. Archie Whitley, known from Mad Max 2, and Bill Kerr from House of Mortal Sin, Ghost in the New Day Sun, and The Pirate Movie. The film runs for an hour and 35 minutes and spots a Rotten Tomatoes score of 58%. Now, the film is currently not streaming through any platforms as of this recording. However, you can rent it for incredibly cheap through most outlets or purchase a copy for around $10 on Amazon. Now, 
with the overview out of the way, why don't we take some time to discuss some initial thoughts? We're going to start off with you, Kier. Um, You were actually the one that brought the film to us, and we're championing for it to be saved. So I'm excited to hear your initial thoughts before we actually dive into the film. I mean, I think one of the things that always appeals to me about Razorback is, uh, for all its flaws, it is one of those movies that I think is what I would describe as a leave it all on the dance floor Mm. movie. It's like, basically, um, it's this kind of like B movie that you could imagine shot in the most bland, flat way. But everything about it is so maximalist. Like my letterboxed review for it was uh, Russell McKay, he went, let's use all the shots. It's it's basically like it, he leaves no stone unturned. It's like it, you, it's got the feeling of he him going. If I never make a movie again, at least I did everything with this movie. Yeah, and that's what I that's what I love about it. I'm like you know we're in this movie about a a, a killer pig. Um, what this really needs is a trippy five minute music video sequence where he's attacked by a strange skeleton thing. Um, you know it's just like I, I don't know. It's it's you know it's it's such a as much as I love Australian cinema um, as Australian exploitation, there is this weird thing about Razorback where it also is just like the beginning of the music video aesthetic um, and how that's going to influence the 80s and like really come into its own in the 90s. And because he's kind of like one of the original guys who jumped from music videos to to films, it, it just also occupies a kind of interesting area for me in that way as well. Um, and yeah, no, I just think, I just think it's fucking fun as well. You know, yeah. to your to your point here, my letterbox review of the film is <clears throat> Jaws for people who have odd exploitation and like their trash cinema with a heavy dose of Dali esque art house swagger. <laughs> uh, I think that's a beautiful review. Moving on to Patrick, you've never seen this film, correct? Are, I would be shocked to know if you even knew about this movie before. I was like, hey, this is what we're watching. So. Going into it, what did you mm-hmm. think uh, the movie was going to be? What experience did you think you were going to have from it? So I did know of this movie from one Keir Seward from when we recorded The Burning. I believe he had mentioned this being in the post show. I think he had mentioned this being one of his favorite exploitation films and that he would love to cover it, which here we are now. Uh, but that was that's all I, I knew of it. Um, so when I looked it up, you know, this is, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Cayman, the first like monster movie we've done in Sa- uh, Save Trash Cinema. Yeah, um, I think so. And so I was really excited to get into it because this is, it's a genre that I don't, I have not spent a lot of time in. Um, not that I did, I don't dislike the genre by any means. I've just not seen a ton of monster flicks. And so I was, it's that and specifically like, animals gone monster like when it's not just like fucking frankenstein or whatever so i was really excited to to jump into this based on the little bit of research that i did mm. yeah so for me i have a little bit of a history with it. this was a movie i watched back so i went through a breakup and during the breakup i think everyone goes through moments they have swings in their life during breakups where they just do something weird well for me my during that swing was uh, i just dove headfirst into exploitation films <laughs> so movies like patrick road games turkey shoot uh dead and drive it and razorback was one um and oddly enough like i didn't really remember a lot of razorback coming into viewing it there were certain scenes from the movie that i distinctly remember they were just like it's especially during there's like a really weird scene we'll get to about midway through the movie where it beca- it turns into like a music video 
where it's like this trippy acid trip, like, and he gets attacked by the skeletal creature. And like that scene stood out. Also the opening of the movie. I don't think you'll ever forget that opening. That first like opening, like five minutes is just kind of cool. Fucking masterful. But it's also, it is that weird thing with Razorback where, um, I'm also kind of like for a movie about a killer pig called Razorback, it doesn't have a lot of killer pig in it. It says true. It's it's about a lot of things. A killer pig doesn't crops up a lot less than you think it's going to. Yeah. Um, and it also just like the thing that I it, I like about Razorbacks, it just it eternally has so many questions that just go along with it. Like, why is there a car in a tree? Um, yes. <laughs> it will. We we don't know. Uh, because Russell McKay, he wanted there to be a car in a tree. It's just, that's a, you know, and I think that's it. That's, you know, it is a movie that is, as I said, very maximalist and you just have to go with it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so there's scenes like that that that, like stood out to me, but honestly, I would say like outside of a couple distinct moments in the movie, a lot of this has been lost of time to me just because of time. And so getting back in and watching it, I... Well, I don't want to spoil my thoughts, but uh, it definitely was an interesting experience. And I'm excited to dig into it with the, the both of you. So why don't we do that and get on with the show? Razorback, everyone. Out here is where it will find you. Now, he must face it. thought you might know what happened. Alone. God has created it, and hell has given it a name. Now, there's a new breed of terror, Razorback. Cold open on a desolate farm in the outback, an old farmer walks into his house and picks up a baby. Outside of the house, he hears the growling of a creature. He exits the house and a massive hog barrels through him in the house. The baby is missing, and the house is engulfed in flames. Title screen! Razorback! I love the opening of this movie. Good lord, this opening is incredible. It's so maximalist, it's just crazy. It's like, it's it's so many things from the fact that you've got like that, that spinning windmill that has some backlight to it, which is inexplicable. So much haze is everywhere. Like literally, the windmill is like shadowing the house. And it's just like every shot is just so intense. And then the whole thing of like him, like also just I love how like the th- the 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 pig just kind of like it just kind of tears through the house like this kind of just like giant cannonball just rips mm-hmm. through it, and then as he's leaving, somehow the house caught on fire. Like <laughs> yeah, there's no yes. point where you understand why the house is now on fire, but it's now on fire. And the bit where he just falls to his knees and then the title just superimposes on top of that. Like I, I literally put up an Instagram story that's like, this is how you start a movie because it's like, I don't know how you watch that and you're not pumped for what's about to happen. I, th- I also a- love the implication where like there's this child in the house and they do the thing that I think a lot of movies of the time would do for budget sake, probably, where you really don't see much of Razorback in this mm. movie. You see parts of him. Uh, and there's this baby and there's a, like a really quick shot where the boar comes in and then the baby's gone. And I'm like, did this boar just steal a baby or is the baby dead? And I love the implication that perhaps for a viewer who's never seen this movie like myself, 
is the whole thing going to be this boars just stealing babies? Because it sounds pretty metal. I mean, well, to your point, though, you're correct. We do, and we'll get to this in a second, but yes, the baby is not found in the house. So it's this this Razorback straight up. And it does, and I really need to, to express this as much as I possibly can. This boar runs through a house, literally goes in one side like you drove a truck. And there's a point later in the film with one of the characters, I think it's Carl, and he mentions, because he's like, I've seen it. It is the size of a rhinoceros. And honestly, like when you do finally get to see it at the end of the film, it is fucking massive. Yeah. Well, it's it's awesome. also like it seemingly has no motives or reasons for anything it does. It just kind of does it because at that moment in time, the movie needs it to do those things. Mm -hmm. It's like, why does it run through the house and steal a baby? Who the fuck knows? You know? And I like, I, I oftentimes am fine with that. If, if yeah. the purpose here is just to be entertaining. Great. I don't need like the, the before action of this pig. I just need to know that the pig is doing bad things. I think and it's what just the maximalist impact of it too that it just basically explodes things. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. it just comes through that wall and the wall just explodes outward. Yeah. And then we, it telekinetically lights a house on fire somehow. I love it. We cut to a jail cell where the old farmer is being held. He's being charged with murdering his grandson. In the courthouse, both attorneys debate over his innocence. Everyone thinks the old farmer is a kook who made up the story of a mutant razorback. We jump to a makeshift encampment where we see the farmer waking up in a cold sweat. Overlaid dialogue plays stating that the court found insufficient evidence to charge him for murder. I gotta say, I know we're only in the 80s here, but when are small towns gonna learn? If someone says something that sounds weird, it's probably true. Just yes. believe them. Like, well, how many times have we seen this? Well, it's interesting, too, because um, like there was a lot of talk. I don't know if it's ever been exactly said, but there's a lot of talk that it that it took inspiration from um, the incident with uh, the woman whose um, baby was uh, stolen by the, the dingo. A baby uh, stole my or was it a dingo stole my baby? The, yeah, which they made the um, the movies, the, the movie with Meryl Streep about in the yeah. late 80s. But like which which, of course, that was a real thing is like literally they did find that the woman's baby was taken by a uh, taken by a dingo, but it's, it's really hard to say it and not have it sound comical. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> sorry. But this is just more evidence categorically that Australia is arguably the most terrifying country to live in. Well, this is, but this is, but not only that is Australia filled with, you know, like eat like poisonous animals and, 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 and crazy vicious things, but it seemingly has marauding bands of angry people in souped up crazy cars whose job is to just go and fuck with people. Like okay. this is what, this is what Mad Max, this is what all of these, these uh, Australian exploitation movies have taught me is that if I drive on the highway in Australia, random people in souped up automobiles will just try and run me over. Honestly, I <laughs> think that we've learned at this point in time that Australia is from its big origins, when the Britons decided to show up, sorry, Kier, and they decided just to drop off a bunch of prisoners on a floating continent and were like, have fun, to now, look, it is a terrifying place. There's nothing you can say to change my mind. Would I go there? Probably. Would I have a good time? There's a good chance I would. 
Would I also be terrified for my life every second of the day? 1,000%. No I did like that. somebody uh, on Letterboxd uh, on their review of Razorback said that, uh, let's face it, Australia is just British Texas. <laughs> that is also very accurate. Been in Texas, 100% can confirm. Correct. Two years later, New York City. We are introduced to a lady who just made a home in time to have dinner. She's on the news interviewing a cattle rustler. She's a news reporter. She tells her husband that she's going to Australia to cover cover a kangaroo slaughter. Also, we find out she's pregnant. This means absolutely nothing in the grand scheme of things. Then, her husband gives her a ring for what reason? Story purposes. We'll get to it. I also love the line. I forget what she asks him, but it's a yes or no question. And his response is, is the Pope Polish? As if... That is just like a such a clear. I mean, I guess this is like a sly Pope John Paul II reference in the eighties, but it was like such a weird like. Is that like a clear yes right now? This is a no. Is Pope John Paul was he Polish? He was. He was from Poland. Oh well, fuck. That's that news to me. That's my Catholic upbringing. That's the only only reason I know that. And this is also like a perfect example, once again, of uh, the Russell McKay, he maximalist approach where, um, you know, so instead of just having an, uh, you know, an establishing wide, he tracks behind the bookcase as the uh, as as uh, Gregory Harris, Gregory Harrison, right, uh, who um, as he walks down to, uh, to to into the living room, it, it can't just be a normal wide shot. It has to be, no, we're going to track behind the bookcase. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Also, can we just address the fact that the husband, Carl, is wearing just the weirdest cooking apron? Like, it's also, plastic, right? Well, I, I also don't it. know if you noticed, but, like, the decoration in the kitchen was just a big, big picture of a tomato that said tomato on it. <laughs> I also like this. Is, this was things. also just one of those like really just like obvious set sets where I'm like this in no way looks like a real place and definitely does not look like a New York apartment. If you yeah. were to tell me that this, if they use the same apartment with all the decor from Kramer versus Kramer, I'd be like, yes, a hundred percent. You are you are correct. This was pulled directly from that movie. Um, it also throws a lot of Tommy Wiseau spoons vibes, where just the whole house is covered in pictures of spoons for no fucking reason. Now we cut back to Australia. The news reporter has arrived and starts exposition dumping about how the Australian town kills a shit ton of kangaroos and also that the town is named after the aboriginal word for intestine. Hey, we need that kind of exposition for this movie, apparently. Which, uh, go ahead. Which I, I want to point out. So she's there to cover the slaughter of kangaroos. One weird fact that I do know about Australia is that, and, and this comes from Patrick and I both, we're from North Georgia, where deers are absolutely rampant here. And so getting a hunting license for a deer, they're pretty much give it to you. And a lot of times they'll hire you to go to certain areas just to kill deer because they cause so much damage. And apparently in Australia, it's the exact same way about kangaroos, especially hmm. in the outback. Like kangaroos cause more car accidents because people will just smash into them. Also, apparently kangaroos are incredibly dangerous to fuck with. So I I'm kind of okay with this, you know? I saw Kangaroo Jack. I know not to fuck with a kangaroo. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know if you guys, uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I actually lived in Australia for a year and um, I've been to Australia twice. And nice. I've had like a weird obsession with Australia since I was a kid. I think it was from, I watched too many episodes of this show called Round the Twist, which I don't know if that, I don't think it ever really made it to America, but it was this weird kind of like kid show 
um, where just like it was kind of like goosebumps, but in Australia. And just it was really surreal, really strange. And any kid who watched it remembers the experience of how fucked and weird that show was. But um, but basically, it means I've always had a low key obsession with Australia. And so I, I backpacked around Australia for a year. And yeah, no, they're it is true. Their kangaroos are all over the fucking place. And I wanted to say that um, when you uh, when you see that bar in the Australian outback that they show you, you may think, oh, this is this is a stereotype. This is just like, you know, Australian beer commercials. This is an extreme version. No, that is exactly what those bars are like. They are filled with very weird guys who live out in the middle of nowhere, probably <laughs> see a woman every six months and are just kind of a little bit fucked up. They are, they are like, like Australian, I mean, um, Australian, I suppose the, the, the Australian term for rednecks is kind of awkward, um, but they are essentially, uh, they're like American rednecks, but like 10 times more extreme. How about that? How, how? Truly oh, they how? are, they are fucking crazy like i have i've been to some of those bars and those guys are insane you don't want to fuck with them i i certainly won't uh so it sounds like you know these bars being a staple in in australia uh this movie mostly shot in broken hill new south wales which yes that is a fam- which i've been to broken hill and broken hill is uh kind of like was basically one of the places to film, you know, sort of like remote stuff. So the original Mad Max was filmed around Broken Hill. Mad Max, um, uh, The Road Warrior was filmed out there. Cool. Um, Wake and Fright was filmed around there. Wake and Fright was kind of like, I don't know if you guys ever seen Wake and Fright? Mm-mm. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, but it's about this guy who gets stuck in a small Australian town and he can't leave. And um, so he starts like drinking and carousing with all of these uh, crazy Australian outback men and kind of goes crazy. Um, amazing movie. But um, but yeah, but that was filmed out in Broken Hill. So Broken Hill is actually more civilized than this movie, than what you see in this movie. But it's a it's a good remote base cool. with which to like, you know, sort of like um, uh, set up shop. But no, I mean, honestly, I got like there's a, there's we went to this small mining town um, when I was uh, backpacking. And I remember our guide just basically being like. Yeah, basically, there's no, they don't know how many people live here because, uh, and nobody here pays taxes because it's essentially out in the middle of nowhere. And if like a tax man or someone from the government tries to show up to like force people to like uh, take a census or uh, pay their taxes, um, their car just mysteriously blows up because (laughs) they can sell, they sell dynamite over the counter there because there's mines everywhere. So it's, and they're like, and they said, it's basically a place too, where there's just essentially just street justice. So it's like, if, if for instance, um, like somebody's caught like selling drugs to kids or something like that, they'll just disappear in the middle of the night. And there's like, <laughs> there's like oh. mine shafts, there's empty mine shafts all over the desert that they can just be dropped down and nobody will ever hear from them again. Wow. So everything you see in this movie is really not that far fetched. Aside from maybe the giant pig, but that's that's sure. the most far fetched. But, but the rest of it is actually not that far fetched. Well, that's speaking amazing. Of, speaking of mine shafts, we'll get to a very important mine shaft here in a minute. The reporter or cameraman walk into a saloon and asks to interview kangaroo shooters, but the patrons at the bar just laugh at her. Licking their wounds, they pack up to leave, but the old farmer and his daughter drive up. 
She interviews him, but he drops a snarky line about blasting Razorbacks and burns rubber out of town. Back in the saloon, one of the ruffians tries to fuck with her, but she ruins his beer with a set of darts and then leaves. The news reporter is out shooting some B-roll when a truck passes her by with a truckload of kangaroo carcasses. So she does the natural thing and follows suit to a meat packing plant. She sneaks into the plant, but is soon accosted by one of the workers, so she hightails it out of there. Driving back to town, the workers from the meat packing plant find her and pull off some real Mad Max shit and ram her off the road. The goon from the saloon drags her out of her car and tries to do <clears throat> some bad things to her, but it's cut short after the duo get attacked by something. So, in this particular scene, it's a really, really interesting setup. She's she's just driving down the road. She turns on the radio, gets some bopping jams. Then, all of a sudden, you just get a pair of headlights in the back. And Never is, a good sign. Yes, never a good sign, but also just like a really great setup for what ends up happening is this. They just end up in like it was like a solid like two minute car chase. And Sydney, who's watching it with me, she brings up a good point. She's like, why wouldn't you just like stop the car, let them like get above you, then have to figure some shit out and then just take off again? And I guess like I've never been in a car chase like that, but like she kind of brings up a pretty good point. Hmm. I feel like if I'm in the outback, I'm in Broken Hill, Cayman. Yes. And these Mad Max style ruffians get behind me. Mm -hmm. I'm not thinking straight. I'm not Fair. making rational decisions. I am gunning it to try and get away from these because then like Kier has kind of alluded to it. I, like I'm so concerned about how many movies I've seen set in Australia or fill in Australia with these kinds of people in it. It's concerning. Came in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I got, so I got pulled over for <laughs> the other day. Uh, didn't get a ticket, but I got pulled over for, for driving a little too fast. Um, and I just whipped over immediately on the side of the road. I think like when you're in that, that feeling, right. Where it's like, Oh shit. Oh shit. Oh shit. You just, just, what is your gut instinct? Sure. So I guess maybe you're right. And thankfully, it's never been Mad Max style people behind me. But see, see what I would do is I just do some sweet donuts, distract mm. them, and then just like take off. You oh, know, yeah. obviously that's that's you know just just I just whip that out. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, if, if you could, I'm do saying it, this is a who it. hasn't driven in like ten years because like, I <laughs> it would come I've, naturally I've never, to you in the moment. I've never had a I've never had a British driving license. I haven't driven since I lived in the states. So. um so yeah, so no, um, but I, I would just pull that out of my ass. Oh, for sure. I love it. I love it. Now the news reporter is able to escape and she gets back into her car. And while she thinks she's safe, it's not long before she's attacked by the Razorback. This is I... like pretty fucking like brutal as well. Like it's actually like, like that's the thing that I do really appreciate about this movie because you can tell how much they're trying to cut around the the killer pig and they know how to utilize it well like utilize the bits that work with it and then you know and i just think that there's a real amount of like effective editing and like you know intercutting and you know just sort of yeah and they make it work really really well like it feels really fucking violent yeah it is a brutal scene and kind of like what i had mentioned earlier they you like mulcahy really does a great job of 
building suspense by not letting us see it but we know what what it is but not seeing it i think just we fill in the blanks in our minds and i I, i'm a sucker for that kind of thing with with those kinds of uh scenes you know patrick texts me he's watching we're watching the movie at the same time he texts me and he's like so i'm really starting to think that this razorback is just kidnapping people and later in the movie, we're going to find like a nest where the kids are there, the ladies there. All these people are just going to be hanging out in a lair. <laughs> I was convinced that this woman was not dead. I was like, she was too big of a deal. Like she, it, this is her story. This is the weird thing with Razorback as well, because it is a movie where throughout it, you cannot figure out what story it's trying to tell. It just like, it moves from like setup to setup and it just becomes incredibly baffling like yeah whose story you're telling and what uh, and what the narrative drive of it is it, it it was about an hour into the movie of an hour and 35 minute movie where i was like oh this doesn't necessarily have like a perspective as much as this is just like the setting and once i was like once i accepted that i was like okay cool i'm i'm i everything makes sense now well this might be the time to bring up the fact that um I don't know. Have either of you guys watched the documentary, Not Quite Hollywood, yes. the mm-hmm. uh, story I, of exploitation? Well, they during the section where they talk about Razorback, um, Gregory Harrison um, basically says how he's like, yeah, we just kept we were just like we, we just every day we'd just be like chopping out, you know, dialogue and subtext and, you know, sort of like themes and whatnot. And, uh, you know, whatever I'd complain to Russell about it, Russell would just be like, yeah, but you've got to start running because like the smoke's going and it's going to start wafting away in a second. So just start running. <laughs> and and, he's, and he, he, he's, he's, he sort of convinced me that nobody's going to be that worried about what you're saying because the visuals are going to look so good. Hey, sure. I mean, fair point, but also there's a podcast called Save Trash Cinema that asks the hard-hitting questions. Well, well and this is, this is the funny thing is then they cut to Russell McKayhee going, that's a terrible thing. I'm sure I never said that. <laughs> now, the next morning, the old farmer and another fella find the destroyed remains of the reporter's car. The farmer kicks around some dirt. And loudly proclaims, it's back. Boom shakalaka. So it's at this point in the movie came in where I start to, I kind of sit back and I think, like, I I understand that this is a big animal, but like, are boars really that dangerous? Yes. And because I I think of other movies and and TV shows that have had boars be dangerous. And and I've just, you know, I've never been around a boar. But we have some trivia here. A little bit of information about the boar came in. While somewhat exaggerated in the film for dramatic effect, wild boars actually are incredibly tough and resilient, combining an immense tolerance for pain and blood loss with a dense hide and thick subcutaneous fat deposits that function as natural armor. As anybody who's actually hunted boars knows, you need to be very precise with your shots because they can take a lot of punishment and keep on kicking. So I, I, I'm, I'm not going to fuck with no boar is the moral of this story. So I do think we, I do think um, that he that uh, that Jake even says that at one point during it is like they have a nervous system that's like very different and you know or something like that. He he alludes to something similar to that. Um, and hey, they did take down Robert Baratheon. That is that was true. when I was like movies and TV shows. I was like Game of Thrones. Yeah, very true. We cut to a Greyhound bus. Driving through the outback, and we see the reporter is on it. Or we say, sorry, we, excuse me. We see the reporter's husband is on it. He's having montage flat, flashbacks of him and his lady. 
He also shaves on the bus, which is probably the worst travel etiquette next to having diarrhea on an airplane. Also dangerous. Yeah. I'd also just like to point out this is Australia, so I highly doubt it's a Greyhound. That's an American company. Oh, fair. Yeah, that's Adam. fair. Just, I'm just, just I'm just quibbling with you left and right here. Yeah. It's almost yeah, we love a me when we when we interviewed when I interviewed you back several months ago and you were like, Hey, you fucked up not only my first name, but also my last name. Well, no, it was just funny because you spent so much time like trying to get my first name right, and then you completely got my last name wrong. That is fair. That as you've learned, I'm very bad with words. The husband <laughs> arrives in town and borrows a car from the hotel owner and drives off somewhere. Sadly, he doesn't know how to drive. But I accept that since I too would be fucked if I drove a car in a different country. Well, he's on the wrong side of the road, you know. Yes, that's the which is, I, you know, it's like I feel like one of those things you tie your shoes, you learn how to ride a bike. It's not something you ever forget. But I feel like trying to drive a car on the different side of the road while also using a wheel that's on the different side of the car is in the same sense where it's like everything becomes backwards to you and everything is wrong. So, so this is also like a thing where I'd like to bring up like a like a thing which was really rife in Australian exploitation movies, um, which was the let's try and appeal to the American market in genre films kind of thing, because um, it was like a thing where basically um, they, they would do this thing where, you know, they would make these movies in Australia. They would cast an American lead and they would, you know, make a poster that didn't say it was set in Australia. And so you go, Oh, I recognize that person. I will go, into that movie and then suddenly when you're you're like wait this movie's set in australia um so that's obviously why gregory harrison is in this but here's my question who in the 80s is going wow i really want to go see that movie because gregory harrison is in it like i i I don't even know who this guy (laughs) is like why is this the the lead of the film i kept waiting for there to be trivia about like this movie was originally written for Harrison Ford or like something like that, but not, not that we could find that. Just one of the, apparently one of the producers said that he wanted Jeff Daniels, but uh, Russell McKay, he didn't think he had, no, 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 it wasn't. I think it was maybe Russell McKay. He said he wanted Jeff Daniels, but the producer said he didn't have enough international appeal, which I think is one of those stories that I'm not quite sure I buy. Um, yeah, because again, like this was around the time Jeff Daniels was getting nominated for Oscars and Starman. So I feel like Jeff Daniels had better things to do, but it's <laughs> right. But it, it's just like one of those things where I just, I don't, I, I don't even know who Gregory Harrison is. My, my, my only real connection is that, like you said, he was in Airbud. Um, and I'm just kind of like, was he in like a TV show at this time? Or like, what was the thing that made people go, this is a guy we need to put in this movie. That's a great question. I still am asking for answers on because it is beyond me. Well, it's he like, it's in... like, sorry. I was going to say he was in Logan's run. I don't remember if, if you said that. No, 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 no. He wasn't in Logan's run. He was in Logan's run, the TV series, right, which I right. didn't even know existed until I was doing research for this movie. Yeah. Which it was on for a few years. So maybe, I mean, maybe that's sure. No, oh, he was in, he was in Trapper John MD which is like weirdly one of those shows people don't realize was as big as it was, you know, the mm. spinoff of MASH. Um, oh, so maybe okay. so that was from 79 to 86. So I guess that would probably be why he's in, he would have been considered a big enough name to be in this. Yeah. Well, George Clooney went from ER to Batman. So, yeah. well, I mean, it's, it's like that thing too, of like you go, 
but it's like road games. You're like Jamie Lee Curtis. She was in Halloween. She was like scream queen at the time. And then you have Stacy Keach, who was just in a lot of stuff at that time. It's like, th those are two like people. I can see why they'd be like, oh yeah, these are bankable American stars. Like I just, again, I, it must be the Trapper John MD thing. Cause I, I otherwise, cause he's, he's also just like, I'm not being mean. He is just like the most generic American man you could possibly imagine. It's actually oh, yeah. one of them always weirdly my quibbles about American Werewolf in London, where like the lead is the most generic human being you could possibly imagine. Yeah. And he's he's kind of got that vibe where he, it is the most milk toast bland yeah, vanilla American ass, man like... you could think of. Yeah. Now, the husband Carl, he arrives at the farmer's shack. He confronts the farmer about seeing his wife. The old farmer brings him in and tells him she was killed by a razorback. He knows because he searched through its shit. The farmer then tells Carl to go around and ask the meat packing place what happened. So he does. Carl is introduced to two men, the same ruffians who fucked with his wife, and they give him a tour of the hunting grounds. They then offer to put him up for the night. Which, no. If I met these two people and they were like, hey, you can stay here, I'd be like, go fuck yourself. Never in a million years. Not only you, you, you can stay here, but you can stay in our weird mine shaft home. Yeah. Just no. no and also I'm just like, good. I have so many questions about this meat, this, this, this sort of <laughs> meat packing pet food thing. So they seem to be the only two employees, yes. uh, which it seems to be a lot, like, who are they shipping to? Where are they? Where, who are they selling to? And apparently business is not good enough for them to be doing anything. Lynn living in this weird lost boys cave shaft that they seem to be in. Um, yeah, like the whole setup of that is a little bit like it, it like many things in the movie, it calls a lot into question. Mm -hmm. Because, but I, I I have that feeling that Russell McKay he was just kind of went, wouldn't it be cool if they lived in a mine shaft? Yeah. Yes, and I feel like if this movie was intended specifically for the American audience, I feel like in the eighties people maybe didn't know like what Australia really was like in the outback. So like they could probably get away with, oh yeah these people definitely lived in mine shafts and the average American viewer would probably be like, did you know that in Australia they live in mine shafts? We were living in a pre crocodile Dundee world where America truly became acquainted with uh, the charms of the Australian outback. True. Now we cut to a guy sitting in his house, watching TV outside. Something is lurking and it breaks into his shed and steals some meat. So he sets up a trap to catch it. Now, back at the hunting lodge, Carl asks the two doofuses about the missing lady, his wife, but he doesn't mention the relation. He tells them he was sent over by the old farmer, and we get a recap of the events from the beginning of the film. The two guys get super defensive about the woman. Regardless, the trio set off to hunt some kangaroos. They pull up in a truck, and after shooting one of the kangaroos, Carl gets pretty sick and then immediately vomits all over the guy's head. So I, I feel like I have to point out too that this is a real thing that I assume probably still goes in on in Australia, but it's like it was definitely like uh, you know it's it's definitely an outback culture thing where they drive around at night in these big you know sort of like uh, off road vehicles that have these giant lights on them, and then you shine them at the kangaroos, and the kangaroos kind of get hypnotized by the light and they just stare at it, and you use that to then shoot them. And wow! So, so this is. And this is like a big thing in the movie Wake and Fright because there's a really famous sequence 
which was done during real kangaroo hunts where they did this and you're seeing actual kangaroos getting shot in it. Um, and it's, it's, uh, somewhat controversial, but it, yeah, it's a, it's a real thing in outback culture is kind hmm. of just driving around at night and shooting kangaroos. So to your point, the phrase, usually while pissed while deer, I mean, as in drunk. So yeah. do your phrase that deer in headlights is similar. So that is something you can do. Like if a deer sees lights, it'll just freeze on the spot. Yeah. Um, and that's why you end up hitting so many deers at night, which to that point is illegal in the United States is to hunt after dusk. Um, essentially, it's not fair hunting if you do that. I don't know why. I guess probably for safety purposes. But yes, you're not allowed to hunt deer after after it gets dark outside. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, those reasons I, I worked at this at this uh, country club up in the mountains and I would have to drive every day. So on my drive home, I would have to go incredibly slow because there were so many deer that you'd have to essentially creep down the road because if you got stuck, like there's a whole horde of deer, whatever it's called. Um, and then you could just be, you'd just be stuck sitting there. And the best thing you could do is turn your lights off and just wait a couple minutes, turn them back on. Then the road would be clear at that point. Um, so it makes sense. It makes sense. Now, Carl, after throwing up on the guy's head, he heads off. And then uses a machete to kill the inca incapacitated kangaroo. The other hunters leave him out in the wilderness. So Carl snuggles up to the dead kangaroo and goes to sleep. This is there's a lot of things going on here. Yeah. So correct. I don't know what the motive of the two guys is, what they're trying to accomplish at this moment in time. I don't kind of know what he's trying to accomplish at this moment in time. Things are just kind of happening at this point. Um, and it's kind of like, this is the infamous point too, where you have a car and a tree for some reason. Yep. Um, because it's the reason that that just gets me is because it's like, they had to production design that. Somebody had to, like, they had to be in a meeting where somebody said, let's put a car in a tree. Like it's, you know, like an old broken down, like it's like a car ch chassis essentially. And somebody had to justify that as a decision and then they had to wheel it out there and go through the logistics the of yeah. putting it up in that tree and it it has no point other than to be part of the background and it's just like it, it just always blows my mind slightly i'm just kind of like i just really i would love to be on a fly in the wall in that conversation about putting the car in the tree unless there is just a random tree in broken hill that has a a car stuck in it so i asked sid in this moment i was like how the fuck or why the fuck would you put a car in a tree and she used one of my phrases back at me that i use at patrick all the time which is don't ask questions mm. and so oh, yeah no, no. What, razorback is 100 a film that you should not ask questions during because you will get zero answers fair there's a Call giant pig <laughs> a lot of people are doing things and a lot of crazy shots and there's a lot of smoke and shit is just going to happen and you mm -hmm. just have to go with it. Now, Carl has some wild ass dreams, but is awoken by the sounds of a menacing beast in the distance. So he takes off running, which bear and he runs into a swamp, climbs up a windmill where he ties himself up and falls asleep. It's in this moment where we do get the extended, very long cut of essentially a dolly painting. Also, it is, I just kind of wish I was on mushrooms while watching this sequence <laughs> because like, wow. There's just so many things that happen in this sequence that you don't 
really know why they're there. Like, it's like when he's walking and there seem to be like fireworks and flares going off in the background. You know, he's walking next to a giant crack in the earth. Like the skeleton thing pops up out of the earth and, and chases him. And at one point it seems a door opens and it's sort of coming through a doorway. And it's like, I have no idea why any of these things are happening. And I do think at one point he seems to wake up as if all of that was a dream and it's but you can tell like there's just they're using a lot of like filters on the lens they're you know it's it's basically just like five minutes of russell mckay he's bag of tricks yeah yes. and i had to rewind the film and watch it again because i thought maybe i was hallucinating <laughs> with how random it, it but like in a good way like it, it was it was one of my favorite parts of the movie for sure but it's also like weirdly a segment as 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 much as you could cut it out of the film and narratively you wouldn't actually lose anything it is kind of one of weirdly the set pieces of the movie it's kind of that thing every yeah. it's one of the things people always remember about the movie even though it kind of has nothing to do with anything else that happens in the movie because it's not even like this is a character that has much interiority or like, mm -hmm. you know, or, 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 or is going through much of an emotional journey or anything like that. His wife is dead and he's sad about it, but that's about as far as you get with him. In, is, and mm -hmm. so it's all of this stuff is just kind of fun, weird window dressing yeah. with no real purpose. A hundred percent. So the guy though, Gregory Harrison, Mr. Harrison himself, uh, Funnily enough, did most of his own stunts and took a beating as a result. In this scene, when he climbs up the windmill, at one point uh, during filming, he falls off the windmill and dislocated his shoulder and had to do the rest of the movie. Just hopped up on painkillers the whole time. Incredible. I, I do like the moment, too, where he takes his belt off and he straps it to the side of the windmill and sort of like roots himself in i'm like you know I, I i always like those little details mm -hmm. you know when they, somebody's kind of thought like okay we need to actually like figure out how someone would stay up here yeah that was, was awesome now the next morning he wakes up to jostling as a bunch of pigs knock over the windmill sending him straight into the muck the pigs can't attack him because they can't swim now after the pigs disperse carl decides to make the trek back to town it's on this journey that he sees the aforementioned meteorites, animal carcasses, and then is finally attacked by the skeletal remains of some long forgotten creature. Which I, the moment of the creature like bursting through the sand. So fucking cool. So cool. And it was very like, uh, I was getting like Beetlejuice vibes, like when they're in the desert with the. At one point, I was watching this movie with Rose, my wife, and she was like, "This this movie is basically like Australian Trimmers," and I was like, "Kind of is in a way, kind of, uh, just a little different." Uh, but this Trimmers makes more sense than this movie. Does. Correct, correct, <laughs> which is kind of shocking to say. Uh, so apparently, after the release of this film, uh, Mulcahy received a surprise phone call from one Steven Spielberg. I don't know if you heard of him, came in, uh, who was curious on how he achieved some of the effects in the dream sequence such as the shot of the two moons, to which I say, fight big box office, save trash cinema. Okay. That's my boy right there. We're teaching him, guys. Well, this is the thing that I always do love, though, about about uh, our boy Stevie, is that uh, he keeps his finger on the pulse. Yeah. Like, the amount of times that you hear, like, some indie director, like, say the story of, like, yeah, like, the film came out, and then I got a call from Steven Spielberg. It's, you know, the man. the man's always out there scouting talent. You know, it reminds me like a more modern day story is actually Martin Scorsese in a recent interview. Uh, he was asked like, what his favorite movie of the year was. And he was like, it's Ty West's Pearl, which shocked me that he would say that. But he responded to that response and said, 
the reason being is because Ty West knows what's up. He knows how to shoot a sequence and he knows how to do it. Like he is making essentially modern grindhouse films today in ways that no one else is. And I don't disagree with them. That's what it's, but you know. it's the same way that I really like how I think it was like either last year or the year before that where Soderbergh was just going around to everybody being like, you got to watch The Vast of Night. It's fucking cool. That guy's like pulled something off really, really Im- impressively. And, you know, everybody should watch that movie. You know, it's really nice when you can just see like big name directors kind of like uh, trying to really sort of champion smaller indie films. Well, I would say like I, I would definitely say that like one of the things that yeah, I think, again, one of the reasons that this movie appeals to me is like, and I I basically, because I was talking to a friend of mine who hosts a podcast called uh, Evolution of Horror uh, today about, because um, I was meeting up with him for drinks, and um, we were talking about, um, uh, I, I was telling him I was going to watch Razorback for this podcast, um, and he, uh, and I, the way I, I pitched it to him was I was like, it's like Tony Scott made a creature feature, you yes. know, it's like, and to me, I do think that there's like, there's a thing everybody became very obsessed in the last uh, two decades about this idea of the digital and the seamless and how it's like how you can do things in like wide shots where, you know, you don't have to like, you, you know, because the thing is like now, you know, you do this movie with a CGI pig and it probably looks like shit, to be honest. But like the thing is you had to be more clever back in the day. You had to do things through hiding things through, you know, sort Mm -hmm. of like clever editing techniques. And I think that there's a real visceral quality that comes out of that. And I, and I think that for me and Alex, and especially if you watch our uh, short film sucker, which is a a creature, you know, sort of um, a, a creature film. It's, it's again, we're using a practical puppet. So we have to think about like ways around doing things because we can't just do things in wide shots. So we got to imply a lot through like, you know, yeah. and it it makes you work harder as a filmmaker. And I think uh, those like those those um, what's the word I'm looking for? Those limitations that are forced. Uh, speaking from like my experience in the theater world, those kinds of like creative limitations, I think, ends up resulting in really, really, really cool shit. Oh yeah, yeah. definitely. Because you because you got to be in that like you have to kind of be in overdrive. Like, okay, how do I still make this work and achieve what I want? Let's put it this way: no part of say jaws is the scariest point the part where you can see a shark mm. like the 100%. shark itself is not scary yeah it's the implication of when you think the shark is there or the shark is approaching or it's around that's scary now carl makes it to the house where he stumbles upon a lady taking a shower she screams and he faints so are we gonna tell the story yeah, I think we can, would you story. do the honors, Kier? Would you do the honors? Okay, so um, the actress who was in this is um, Archie Whitley, or Whiteley, who um, you might also remember was in The Road Warrior. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so the script called for a nude scene for her to be naked in the shower. Um, and she was uncomfortable about that she was like i don't i don't really want to do that i don't think i'm i'm prepared for that so the producer then goes away and goes uh, he plays a bit of a trick on her oh no he sort of says okay well i'm i'm gonna bring in a body double then and we'll we'll get the we'll get the body double to do it and she kind of goes okay well what does the body double look like and he goes yeah no she's fine i mean she's got some some cellulite you know around the side and you know so it just sort of keeps like kind of like being like yeah no i mean she's her, you know, her, her, her boobs are a bit saggy and kind of like, and then, so she, she, she goes like, well, 
fuck, if if people are going to think that's what I look like naked, then I'd rather do it myself. <laughs> and um, that's how they got wow. her to do the, uh, the nude scene. Save huh. Try Cinema. The next morning we find that the this ladies take... Like, there's so many bad stories that that is actually by... In the, in the grand scheme of these things, that is actually not that bad. It, I was expecting it to be a lot worse than that. Yeah. For fair, sure. Fair, fair. There the was no, no, no Harvey Weinsteins were involved in this one. Fair. Yeah. That's also very fair. Now, the next morning we find that the lady is taking care of Carl and is mending his wounds. The farmer then arrives and is like, hey, you found the Razorback. And then he just leaves because he's going to go kill it. Well, this now, is that point where you're kind of like, oh, yeah, the farmer's in this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We've been following Carl for a while. Now, Sarah, the lady who tended to Carl's wounds, tells him more backstory on the old farmer and how this particular mutant Razorback ruined his life. And he's hellbent on blowing its shit up. We cut back to the guy from before, the one who made the trap. He's watching TV once again and also is drinking a foster beer, which... Is apropos, I suppose, if you live in Australia. Apparently, his trap is very shitty, and the Razorback not only breaks out of it, but rips half of his home off the foundation. This thing is a fucking beast. This is a really awesome sequence, but I don't, it's only just occurred to me. It has literally nothing to do with the rest Absolutely of the movie. Absolutely fucking nothing. nothing to do with it. It comes back in no way. It has no bearing on anything else that happens in this movie. Yes. Yeah, you made that point earlier from the documentary that like things are being cut left and right. And this is one of those scenes where I'm like, hmm, I wonder why this wasn't one of those things cut. Which also it doesn't serve the, the movie very well. It, it honestly, if anything, it does harm to the movie if you're asked the question like, no one believes that this thing exists. Because presumably this dude hangs out at the same saloon that everyone else does. And you would also assume that he would go there and say something along the lines of, some big ass fucking animal ripped half of my house off, and yeah. then all 75 dudes that live in this town would be like, Let's go kill it. You know, well, it's like, also like that weird thing, too, where like traditional Hollywood script writing would suggest that you have the antagonist of the two brothers working at the um the 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 pet food thing, and you have this giant pig, and that there's those are these two kind of dueling antagonists. And it's also, but it's that weird thing of the two actually don't have anything to do with each other. It's entirely coincidental that they keep getting kind of like mixed up in each other's shit. Yeah. Like the brothers don't seem to even, do they even believe that the pig exists or it, th there's no kind of like weird, there's no point where those two things cross over. I kept mm -hmm. waiting for it to be, have some sort of crossover point. Like even like they're using the pig in some kind of way or they've trained it or they've done something. No, it, they cool. just kind of happen to show up at the same time. Yeah. Now, Sarah and Carl get a little chummy and she explains how she is a scientist who tracks animals. She explains that the boars around these parts are acting super weird eating each other, and having stress ulcers, which, as someone who is about to get married, I can relate. The old farmer finds the beast and sends his dogs after it. He then unloads about 42 rounds into it, then plugs its ass with a tracking dart before screaming into the abyss for a solid five seconds. I love this scene. This yeah. scene's fucking cool. Like, I just love, like, I love, like, a, a badass, like, I'm gonna stand my ground and just shoot shit and be kind of like i, I i'm gonna take anything you throw at me like I, this is a battle of wills mm -hmm. Absolutely. and also just like it's it's again it's that thing where you kind of like i am very aware that this giant pig 
thing that they've built probably doesn't move very well and that they can only really like show it in pieces and like show it in like long shots but that what kind of like is what's cool it gives it this kind of weird mystique that i just really sure. like I yeah i did i did kind of hope that like this i feel like this standoff could have been a cool time for us to really get like a nice picture of it but i respect that we did i respect that like they still kind of went that like i don't think we ever really see the Not razor back really. in full at any point mm -hmm. like we get the close-ups of its head mm -hmm. we, which I are always which are really one... which are really good like it's very emotive as a as a as a mm -hmm. mechanical i think you know, we thing. get one shot at the very very end where we do see it but in that point we'll get to now the old farmer goes and checks the pit where the razorback was at and he finds it shit and he digs through it and then he finds the ring that Carl gave his wife. The ring from the very beginning of the movie, and honestly at this point when I was watching it, completely forgot about. And then it dawned on me like, oh, that was, that's why he gives her some random fucking ring for no fucking reason. There we go. There we go. There that's we called go. character development. <laughs> I don't know if that's called character development. <laughs> no, no, no. See, see, the thing is he had a female... And now he doesn't, and he gave this female a thing, and now the female is dead, and so all he has to remember the female by is the thing that he gave her. So therefore, mm -hmm. that's character development. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes him sad. Saying. That's how that's his character developed. Saying. If we're talking about <laughs> 80s films, yes, you're a thousand percent correct. I also want to point out that you and Alex both make movies that are very female-centric. And so I do want to clear with the audience that you are not just a huge piece of shit. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm actually, it's again, it's like, it's like, I don't, I can't remember who it was. I think it was College Humor. They did this whole uh, sketch that was about like uh, film producers and they're kind of like, we found that if we, cr if, you know, if, if when you have a rock, if you put several small rocks next to it, uh, people go, oh, we sympathize with that rock now because it has other, you know, it has rocks to, you know, that to humanize it in some kind of way. I can't remember. I'm doing the bit badly, but it's, it's basically that thing of like, uh, how it's like we have a male character and we've given him a female so that you will sympathize with him. Mm -hmm. That's fair. It's very, very like scientifically like A, B, C, D, E. I mean, you know, they 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 didn't waste any time. They fridged the the uh, the wife right off the bat. Oh my god, yes. Now back at the house, the farmer gives Carl the ring, so I suppose Carl and Sarah can fuck with permission now. So good for them. The farmer tells Sarah to start tracking the Razorback, and then he's going to find it and kill it without help. Now, the old farmer makes a camp near a waterbed to stake out the Razorback, unbeknownst to him. The Mad Max ripoff duo are lurking about. They believe that the old farmer might know where th that they tried to sexually assault the news reporter, so are looking to put an end to him. The two kidnap the farmer and break his legs, leaving him out in the wilderness to be eaten by the Razorback. Luckily for the farmer, he has his trusty dog, which he sends off to get help. See, this is, again, this is one of those things where, again, I'm, I'm really muddy on everybody's motivations. Yeah. So was the reason that they did that because, yeah, so the reason that they, they hobbled the farmer and left him for dead. But th do they know that the Razorback is going to come after him? Or 
Yeah, I don't know. People yeah, do things is, in this movie. It, this is kind of when the movie starts to like there these kind of there have been enough things at this point that have now piled up where I'm starting to like question things about the movie. Like because there have been so much good shit, but then there's been so many things like this where I'm like, why is this here? Like we don't need this. I just but. want to point out there's an inc- like there's an incredible scene. And it's it's really I don't I don't know if it's lighting or digital effects at like in post or how they accomplished it. But there's a scene where the one guy that's part of this duo, his name's Dicko, is his name in the movie. And he's going to hobble the farmer and he pulls like a hatchet up and it like freeze frames on him. And it's like just his all black silhouette holding a hatchet with like the sun setting. And it is one of the most beautiful shots I've seen in a movie in recent years. Like, it is just absolutely fucking incredible to look at. I just love the way that they use the lighting in this film. And it is just very intense because, like, you know what's going to happen. They don't show the scene on screen. So you're, once again, you're left with interpretation until you see aftermath. And it's just really, really, really well done and really was, like, one of those moments where I'm like, this is why we do what we do. We save trash cinema because of things like this. When like I think people I, need to see this movie for this reason, it's beautifully shot. When I think that's what's so fascinating about it is there's so much intentionality behind the visual look of it, um, which is, I think, what is then so funny about how the plot makes no sense and nothing yeah. going on makes much sense because mm-hmm. all of the intentionality of the visuals is not matched by any of the intentionality of the story or themes um, because it's, it's so just purely visually led. Yeah. That's clearly its main purpose at all times. And it's, it's, it's what Russell McKay, will go on to do because again, Highlander makes no fucking sense either. So Correct. it's, it, it, it is just kind of like, it, it's, it's his thing. It's, you know, I mean, it is a visual storytelling medium. So, well, and I think that's kind of it. I'm very sympathetic to something where somebody has taken a maximalist approach to something and has just kind of created a bit of a visual experience, which is why I'm also a bit of a Michael Bay defender. Um, because, you know, there's just like, th- there's something to be said about just like the pure visceral thrill of a like a a, a, a visually kinetic and like gorgeous looking movie, sure. even if it like you, you can't figure out what the fuck's going on. Yeah. We go to Carl and Sarah as they're saying their goodbyes at the bus stop. They kiss. And I'm just like, please, guys, just fuck already. Can I ask you that? How do you know it's a bus stop? What, what would it be called in Australia here? I just, I just, no, I just find it funny that it, it's out in the middle of the desert. There's just this little stick with a little wooden board on it that says bus stop. Okay. Well, you, <laughs> you fucking burned my ass earlier by saying this was a thousand percent not a Greyhound. That's very American of me to make that wrong distinction. I think, I think you're missing. I think you're missing my, my point. Actually, my point yeah, is that yeah. I just think it's really funny how out in the middle of the desert, yeah. you just have this little like handmade sign that says bus stop, because I will say that I, uh, one of the things I did when I was in Australia is I went to this small town out in the middle of nowhere, uh, where I picked, uh, fruit on a farm and um, they had a train station there. And when I say a train station, there was a sort of raised platform that was about, uh, you know, 10 feet wide. Um, that this that was just this, this long set of tracks ran by. 
and you know you would see like this train coming out of the distance there's like a couple of trains that would come by a day and literally this train would stop and then they just put like a little board down that you'd walk across into the train and that's kind of like one of the weird surreal things about the outback is you are in the middle of fucking nowhere yeah and so i just love the idea of like that you would just wander up to this this little like sign with a little like that just says bus stop on it and at some point uh, but it's not like it's got like a schedule or anything like that. You just got to wait there and hope just that trust. at some point a bus is going to show up. I think it we're missing me... the part. Sorry, Patrick. I was, I was just going to say, it reminds me, there's a movie that we watched on this podcast. I, it might've been evil tunes. It might've been leprechaun. I forget which movie it was where like toward the end of the movie, there was just this really funny thing where they were just like, kind of like telling us things on like cardboard where they were just like, right. Like mm. monster this way. Hookers. That's what it was. Hollywood chainsaw hookers where like, they were basically just writing on these like this way for whatever. And it just, it gave me that vibe with the bus stop. I, I just, I feel like we're missing the part here where the, these two characters, Carl and Sarah have not only sexual chemistry, but the movie has given us multiple scenes in which, like these two are gonna fuck. I feel like this needed like a Terminator style like sex scene where it's landing like the '80s synth and it's really backlit and it's just like you know and it, you you feel like this is you feel like Russell McKay he would do something interesting or weird with a sex scene at this point. Give me some sexy sax. Let's make this a Jim Belushi film in the early '90s. No, you know, I'm, I'm totally wrong. Guy. Actually, it's not a Terminator. It's a top. It is a Top Gun style sex scene. Yes. Thank you. Yes, yes. we it's needed like a glorified, this like a glorified PowerPoint, essentially, where like yeah. you just like linger on shots and like Look, fade to the next shot. I'll be the bad guy here and say it: the shower scene, not sexy at all. No, they're giving it's us really, all these teases. We're not getting any sexiness. It's a very perfunctory seed, and then they have zero sexual chemistry. Correct. So what we need is we need like one of those just really awkward 80s sex scenes where they're like cut up to the close up of the hand slowly oh, moving yeah. down the torso. A yeah. close up of like a boob where is like like there it's like lightly touching it. Uh-huh. You know, like silhouette of like mouths like awkwardly kissing each other. That's what we need. That is exactly what. Just we a need. lot of smoke around too. We need lots, lots of smoke. smoke. Obviously we need the smoke. Oh, tons of yeah. smoke. Yeah. What we do see is the farmer drag himself through the muck and he eventually pulls himself into an abandoned shack. At the same time, we see the two douchebag Aussies and they run over the farmer's dog. Jesus Christ. Now, Sarah drives by. She sees the dead dog, which sets off major alarms. So she turns around and goes and picks up Carl. Well, I, I also like the fact though that when they send the dog off, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like the lassie, go get help yeah. kind of thing. And then immediately it's just like, <laughs> nope. I'm, I'm worried because I got two dogs. I'm worried that if I ever die one day and they're near me, I'd be like, I'd be dying on the ground, be like, go get help. And they'd just be like, uh, no, we're just going to sit here and look at you. Like, what the fuck are you doing? So, like, I don't have a lassie. I need it. I probably should need one the way that I live my life. Yeah, I d- I've never met a dog that I think would actually be good at that. Like dogs, their their priorities don't seem to be I'm going to run and go get help. They're not aligned with my needs in that moment. Back in the shack, the mutant Razorback attacks the farmer, scours sheet metal with its massive tusks, and then it guts the farmer. Sucks. Makes a mess of the walls. Oh, totally. Now, yeah. Sarah and Carl arrive too late to see the farmer, but Sarah, determined to avenge him, 
heads off to gar- gather an army of hunters. At the same time, Carl notices markings on the ground and realizes the two dipshits has something to do with this. So Carl I feel like has- hunters is a very generous way of putting it. <laughs> I think drunk assholes with guns, I think, is a more way of like putting it. Honestly, I think if we were to like pull together all of the hunters in the world, majority like the majority of what we pull together are what you just said. Drunk, drunk assholes, assholes with, with guns. guns. Yes. Now Carl heads off and finds one of the sh- one on the shitter and chases him around the outback. He loses sight of the man and then gets a hook to the leg. He's able to capture the guy and scares him into giving up the goods on where the other man is and then lets him fall to his death. Now, I, I do want to point out, this is very important here because it's something Kier brought up earlier, is that this scene, there's just a bunch of fucking mine shafts just open in the ground all over the area. So the dude jumps out. He's got a hook in his hand. He hooks him in the leg. Doesn't deter Carl because Carl knows what's up. And then it ends up leading to Carl basically kicking dirt in the dude's face for like a solid few minutes. And then the guy's like, oh, man, are you going to leave me here? And he's like, fuck you, I am. And then the dude drops to his death. So apparently, as as Kier mentioned earlier, there are mine shafts everywhere. And this indeed happens all the time. Australia is a big place for opal mining. So that's kind of like that's where a lot of the that's what a lot of the mining out there is. I, I, I really do quibble with what this guy's strategy was. So I'm going to hide in a mine shaft that where I'm, I'm clinging on to a, a rope, basically. And then I'm going to reach out of the mine shaft and just swipe this guy with a hook. And then just stay in my hole where I'm at a lower point and at an immediate disadvantage. Like, what did he think he was going to do? It just, yeah, it... it I just I feel like your strategy is off, my dude. Yeah, I also I really appreciated we you know we alluded to him being on the shitter. I really yeah. appreciated the shot of him like waddling out with his pants like beneath his butt yeah. and his butt's just out. Like I love a good he butt even, waddle. He even throws his toilet paper yeah. he was using in Carl's face. Which love if it. that is the distraction you're gonna do, honestly, pretty fucking awesome. I feel like Carl's energy just this whole time is kind of like he just he just seems to live in constant bewilderment of what the fuck is up with Australia. Like he just he just <laughs> looks baffled by every single thing that happens to him in this movie. And that wasn't acting. <laughs> no. That was him that was him dealing with Russell McKay's direction. Yes. yes. At the saloon, Sarah gets the whole town involved and about 75 dudes book off into the wilderness looking to cook some bacon this was a real kind of it's a mad 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 world kind of moment everybody just mm-hmm. runs into their cars and is just off to the races okay, let's go now unfortunately for them the hog they find is more of a piglet than anything else so they laugh her off and head back to the saloon at the meat packing plant carl arrives looking for vengeance but something else is there as well carl is soon attacked by goon number two but is able to fend him off. The goon tries to escape, but Carl is able to knock him off course. Carl speeds up in a truck, and instead of just crushing him, he decides he wants to look his prey in the eye. Before he can kill him, the Razorback arrives, which causes a diversion. So so this is, again, where my whole kind of like, the Razorback and the crazy assholes they are entirely separate in terms of their, uh, they're, they're not like linked up in any way. 
And the way that they seem to be linked up in the plot is that because they ran her off the road and they were going to do bad things to her, but stopped because the Razorback interrupted them, they're still technically responsible for her murder because they were probably going to murder her and then the Razorback did it for them, but not the Razorback didn't murder them because of them or anything. It's it's like that weird thing yeah. where again I'm like it's really messy the mm -hmm. intention and the revenge and of all of be. this. Yeah, you you just feel like there's some kind of plot point where they could have linked up everything that was going on with the the pet food thing and the two brothers with the Razorback, and it could have all kind like even like if it was like I don't know this was this pig that they trained from like when they were kids and that they 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 like brought him up on all this kind of like rotten meat or something like that and mutated it or something like that and then it turns on its owners its creations mm -hmm. at the you know, who created it at the end in this kind of frankenstein way it's like this it just feels like there's something missing here and yeah. again the point that again he goes to seek revenge with it and kill the guy and then the razorback just kind of randomly shows up at the same time for no reason. It's not drawn there for any other reason than the plot needs it to be there at that moment. Yeah. Kills him and then tries to kill Carl. It's 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 it's, it's just very messy. It's a lot of convenient plot armor, for sure. Yeah. Uh I started laughing uh a minute ago because I read this next little bit of trivia. Uh so David Argue, the guy who plays the aforementioned goon number two, Dicko Baker, which I'm I'm ashamed we haven't been referring to him as his character name, Dicko. Well, okay, the th here's the thing is I don't think they actually say his name at all during the movie, but he has a name in the credits. Which... Yeah. So this actor who plays Dicko showed up on set one day with a big patch of his hair shaved, saying it was because his character had ringworm. He also stayed in character offset because he was kicked out of his hotel. This man he, he, seems like this is like when you hear those actors be like anyone who method acts is a fucking asshole. This is why this is this is he's also in um, uh, one of my favorite Australian movies, uh, Gallipoli. He mm -hmm. plays uh, he plays one of the the guys who Mel Gibson is friends with in, um, in Gallipoli, who I believe is called Whitey, I think, in that one. But yeah, no, I, I, that that funny, string that, of character names. And in that one, he's also like he's the complete opposite. He's like the awkward Christian boy who mm. doesn't approve of all of that well, of them going off to like uh, hook up with prostitutes before they go to war. Classic. So you know he's got range. Is what range. I'm he has range. <laughs> he can play weirdos in all levels of uh, all levels of movies. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I love it. Now, Dicko Baker, he escapes just for long enough to find himself trapped by the Razorback. This ends about how you'd expect with a little freak getting absolutely chomped by the mutant beast. Now, Carl tries to flee in a truck, but apparently his time in the outback hasn't helped his driving ability, and he rolls the truck over. So quickly. With not much else to do, he runs back inside the plant and hides. I kind of love this plant sequence. I'm not gonna oh. lie. I think oh, it's, yeah, yeah, I think it's really fucking cool. Is incredible. Now, I I also just love that they have the weird grinder thing. Yes. that just seems to have a red light under it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I still can't figure out. Dude. Yeah, I still can't figure out what it does. But we'll get to to how this plays in. Now, Sarah, now finding the right tracker, tries to enlist the head the help to head to the plant, but the guys at the bar aren't interested in another wild hog hunt. 
Carl, on the other hand, has no choice but to try to evade the monstrous spore inside the plant. He runs up some stairs and gains the high ground, but finds himself trapped only for the Razorback to knock the scaffolding down, sending him to his impending doom. Outside, Sarah arrives and calls for Carl. This distracts the beast from eating Carl, but puts her in the middle of the path of destruction. Carl rappels down just in time to help her get into the plant, but soon enough, they're both trapped with only one outcome, kill or be killed. The Razorback chases after Carl, so he does some jungle gym moves and pulls down a piece of piping. He scuttles up against the wall and uses the rampaging beast momentum to help him impale it on a pipe. I don't remember if it's at this point or if it's a little later in this section, but I really love the point in this final sequence when the plant is just like so everything is just happening to where like the entire screen is just shaking and like you can't even really see what's happening because there is just so much mayhem happening inside this plant that it just... It's like motion sick, but in in a good way, which is kind of an oxymoron. But um, so this is when we kind of get the the biggest view of Razorback so far. So some trivia, a full sized, fully animatronic model Razorback was built at a cost of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars and is seen for only a few minutes. While the animatronic boar was used for filming for a few shots, they did use a real hog with prosthetic tusks and uh and prosthetic tusks and hide to match the animatronics that were very convincing. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I mean, it's weird. I, I would have, I assumed anytime that I saw a boar, it was fake. Um, but it's interesting to, to know that some of that was a real boar just with fake shit on it. Interesting. I think it's actually, it's again, I think there's something about the way that the film, has this very discernible style to it, which yeah. makes the Razorback kind of blend into everything because everything feels so heightened and almost kind of surreal that the the board just kind of blends into that whole notion. Like you don't really question it just because it feels a piece with the weirdness of everything else in the movie. Now this does little to stop the beast, but luckily for him, pigs are dumb and it gets its tusks stuck inside some electrical wiring, which overcharges the meatpacking plant. Carl then uses his newfound knowledge that man is smarter than pig and lures it down a conveyor belt that conveniently ends in a massive shear-like fan thing. At the last minute, Carl dodges the Razorback, which sends the hog into the machine, turning it into breakfast sausage. Do you think they, do you think they ate that boar afterwards? Yes. Oh, thousand percent. Yes. I would look, they've set up a few times now, this giant fan thing that's got massive sharp ass blades. I still don't think that this exists in real life. They, they 100% just created this thing. Cause I just watched a slaughterhouse that came out in like the late eighties. And they actually showed you in the director's gut, just how pigs are killed on screen. It was awful to watch in real time. But but that 100, this whole thing that they have created does, was not there. And I genuinely believe that they made this contraption just for this movie. Yeah, seeing the like animals like that in places where they are farmed is like the things they use. It's like, it's so bad. Awful. 
And this did not look like that from what I know. Not at all. No, this looked yeah. very this, this looked like this looked like um the uh, Madonna Express Yourself video, um, like in hell. <laughs> yes. Yes. And with the meat packing plant set to explode, Carl uses a fun trick he learned from earlier and just whacks one random machine, which makes everything good again. Which uh, you know, grade A mechanical work. With his life safe, Carl exits the plant and finds Sarah precariously hung upside down, but still alive. They embrace. Roll credits! This is like, this is one of those classic, just like, I guess the movie's over. It's a freeze frame, you know, yeah. and credits are just going to roll over it. It's like, it's, it's like, I was like, oh, this is the moment you decided to end the movie. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, yeah. I, I was taking like notes or whatever, and I, I, I look up and I'm like, oh, oh, we're done. Okay. We're done. All right. Uh, I guess I'll <laughs> close my computer. <laughs> the movie just ends. It's, just it's like, it's like, I always think of it as that like funny thing in like the 90s. Uh, I think late 80s into the 90s where like every movie ended with like somebody like sitting in the back of an ambulance and then like them having like a, well, that was a crazy adventure we went on. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, yes. We certainly have had an emotional catharsis. And then that the, the, you get like a helicopter shot going back is like the credits yeah. would roll over it. Um, and I was kind of like, I was expecting something like that. Some kind of like, just like calm down moment, but it's like, oh no, we survived that. Boom. End credits. Yep. Look, they survived later. You well, have a life to get back to, I guess. You, I mean, it's like, it's kind of like, guys, you've been watching a movie about a killer pig this long. I mean, we're not going to keep you any longer than this. Fair, fair. That is fair. Now, to so this point in the episode where we pull our thoughts together and we ask the question, save it or can it? So as always, I'm going to start off with Patrick. I'm going to ask him because he's always the tricky beast amongst us all. Ooh, Trixie. And I'm going to ask you, Patrick, save it or can it? So this is an interesting one for me. I, I think, you know, if you're sitting down to watch a movie and just be enraptured by the plot, this movie is not for you. But I think this is a save for me because I think the visuals and like the cinematography and it's just such a it's a visual feast for the eyes that I think it is absolutely worth taking the hour 45 or however long it is to watch this. Uh, because there's a lot of good shit in this, even though there is, if it were like 20 minutes shorter, if they cut some things, I think this would be like eaten so much better than it is, but I think it is still a very, very strong film and one that I probably will watch again at some point for sure. All right. Well, Patrick saved it, uh, which is a rare feat on this show. We're going to move on to Kier, the one who brought us the movie. And I kind of have a feeling I know where this is going to go. But Kier, save it or can it? I mean, obviously, it's a 100% save. I, I think it's just a weird, unique experience. Like, yeah. I, I can't really tell you another movie that's like it. And I think there's something that's just so kind of idiosyncratic and fascinating for all its flaws. It is a movie with so many sort of weird standout sequences and strange touches to it. Um, do I think it's a perfect movie? No, but I think it's an absolutely fascinating film to watch. All right. Well, Kier saved it as well, which brings me to me. I'm going to save it as well. You know, I was texting Patrick and I was telling him about it and we we're kind of talking a little bit after the movie. And, uh, for me, it's interesting because I don't know. I, I look at a movie like Jaws, which I think really, well, one, it created the summer blockbuster. But at the same time, like, I don't know. I, I kind of think that Jaws is a little overrated in terms of 
what it is as a film. And I'm not going to say that Razorback is better than Jaws. But what I will say is I think in terms of directing cinematography and just visual presentation, I think that Razorback is just more visually interesting than Jaws is as a movie. And if you're looking at like when when you know animals attack, I, I think this is a very solid movie to go with. Um, and I think that this is one, it does the same thing where you keep the monster hidden for a majority of the film and you get a big reveal at the end, which is similar to Jaws. But leading up to that, the movie is just beautiful to look at. Like it is one of those very interesting, just gorgeous looking movies. And I think the pace is fast enough to keep you interested throughout the entire film. And so I think if you're looking for an exploitation film or you're just looking for an, an animal attacks film, I think Razorback is really going to hit for you. Um, and so this for me is a definite save. Now, if you've enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and share the hell of it with your friends, loved ones, and worst of enemies. Honestly, word of mouth is key here, and we are beggars. Also, fuck Keith. If you're interested in video games, check out our sister podcast, The Spotlight Games Podcast, and all of your favorite streaming services. We also have a YouTube channel, so don't be a heathen. Check us out there as well. Also, we're streaming live on Twitch every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern, so come check us out. Now, Kier, you have a new short film out currently on Alter, and it's fucking fantastic. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about it, where they can find it, where they can find you, and where they can check out all the other stuff you guys have created. Uh, yeah, so the film's called Do Not Resuscitate. Um, basically, it is a kind of, I would say it's kind of like uh, like a lot of the stuff, the shorts we make, it's kind of like made to be a bit of like a just a crazy ride. It's under five minutes. It's, you know, basically about uh, two paramedics who show up at a house call and uh, find that a dead body is not as dead as it initially appears. Um, and yeah, it's like very hyper stylized. It's like, got some gross out stuff to it um uh, i basically said it's kind of like stylistically it's like trying to be the the love child between brian de palmer and tony scott um and um yeah no um so if you it's got some fun movie references in it uh i was particularly that's got a last line in it that uh, everybody's been uh, everybody seems to really like the uh the reference there um i don't know if you caught it cayman oh boy did i <laughs> yeah. i'm trying to keep the the mystery alive here. Yeah, yeah yeah but um but no um so it's on altar so if you just go on youtube and type in altar and do not resuscitate you can also check out our film wretch which is also on altar um which has a a fun uh, you know kind of like which has a fun, similarly fun kind of like crazy like horror ride experience to it um and yeah we're currently in the process of uh working on a feature which we're going to shoot We'll be finished shooting in November uh, for and should hopefully be doing the festival rounds next year. Uh, my we've got another short that's doing the festival rounds at the moment called Sucker. Um, so if you follow us on, you know, if follow Switchblade Cinema on Instagram or Twitter, you can keep up with the, the movements of that film. We just won best horror short at Dead Northern um, and we will be playing at scream fest in la on the 16th of october so yeah so that's 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 a, that's a that's a big roundup of things 
Oh, come on, Kier. You also were were forced into getting a Twitter account as well. I, I was forced into getting a Twitter account, which I don't use very much. Um, so, uh, yeah, you can um, find me on Twitter at uh, Kier Seward. So, you know, that's the that's the challenge. Spell my name right, and then you get to find me on Twitter. Or you can find me on Instagram. Again, just type in my name, Kier Seward. Um, yeah, well, that's the, that is the one convenience of having a weird name, is that uh, if you Google me, I am the only one who will show up. I know that. I'm easy to find. I very much know exactly what you're talking about. Now, in the meantime, you can follow me at Kid Cayman. Patrick, where can they follow you? They can follow me at Patrick Schwag on Twitter. And you can also follow our sister podcast at Spot Game Spot on Twitter and Spotlight Games Podcast on Instagram. You can follow Save Try Cinema at Save Try Cinema absolutely everywhere. Remember, fight big box office. Save Trash Cinema. So I'm going to blow my nose. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. <laughs>